This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Currently ceasing fire, as all Israelis should. <laughs> our Gentile of the Week is author John Green, whom you may know as the young adult novelist and author of The Fault in Our Stars. But he came to talk about his new nonfiction book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, which is based on his podcast of the same name. And our J-O-T-W, Jew of the Week, is former Late Show with Stephen Colbert writer Jen Spira, who has been on the show before, and returned this time to tell us about her debut book, Big Time. It's been a while because we had the conversion episode and then we had the Israel episode last week, which we didn't really connect for, like we did it a little bit piecemeal. So it's like, now we're back on Zoom, the three of us. Can I can I catch you up? It's time for a special, non-special episode. Yeah, let's just get a please, a normal episode. What is up in Oppenshire Manor? How's how's life in the country? I want this to be boring, this episode. Okay, I'm going right. to bore you to tears. Okay, <laughs> give us absolutely mundane news. So first up, a number of people have written to ask how my newsletter is going, and I now have subscribers in the mid three figures who are subscribing to my print newsletter, getting a, a photocopied page a week or three pages a month. By the way, friends, if you want the newsletter, it is markoppenheimer.com slash newsletter from Mark Oppenheimer. So here's the thing. Last time I talked about the labor involved, someone said, you need a trifold machine. And that was brilliant advice because I bought one of those. It was not cheap, but now I could just feed all the papers in this chute and they all come out folded in little, you know, three ways, like when you fold a letter, an eight and a half by 11 letter. So that saved me a few hours. What I still have to do by hand is sticker them. And I haven't found the right machine to put the little clear stickers on them so that I can get my bulk mailing rate. So if anyone, I want to crowdsource this. By the way, I'm sorry. I, lo- I love the way it's going. First came the folding machine, now the stickering machine. Now yes. you'd be like, and if only we could take all the mailing involved and put it somehow digitally <laughs> so it ends up in your inbox. <laughs> How would we do that? Is there a machine? I will say the sticker is like that little, like that round clear sticker that connects the page, right? Like, so it folds together very nice. Yes, it's called a wafer sticker, I've learned in the mailing industry. Like literally like a communion wafer. It's a wafer sticker. Yep. You like that? Because you get the newsletter. Do you enjoy tearing? I love it because I don't get that much good mail lately. You know, I get a lot of things like for mayoral candidate, DA candidates. It's me, Andrew Yang, and Pottery Barn in your mailbox. Can I tell you how much pleasure this thing brings me? I I have a whole ritual for it. When it arrives, I I put it on my stender, you know, the the little stand where I I put my sidor, where do I pray? By the way, those of you who don't know what a stender is, all of you should have a stender. It's an amazing word. It's an amazing object. Oh, absolutely. It's an amazing, beautiful wooden object. All of you go out, go to Etsy, buy yourself a bespoke stender. Props up your book. And so I put your newsletter on my stender. I go over to the kitchen <laughs> and I take great care. I always take great care with martinis, but I, th- I feel I take special care <laughs> before an Oppenheimer <laughs> newsletter. I, I, you know, I- A martini? I rub the rim of the glass with citrus to give it ooh, that, that floral ooh. thing. I, I really, you know- and then I sit on my couch, I shouldn't say couch, on my leather reading chair, and I read with, with great pleasure and joy. For three minutes, and then it's over. It's For 90 so seconds. <laughs> like all good things in life, it is over way too soon. So I've really been having a lot of fun doing that. And I'll, I'll give people a preview of one of the things I'm going to write about this week, I think, is that daughter Anna, second grader, now at a Jewish day school where we moved her because they were opening during COVID. We already had one other child there. She had her first Aliyah, the Kochavim, Aleph, and Bet. The classes went up and did the prayer over the Torah reading together this week. So a bunch of seven-year-olds going up and saying, Baruch Hu went on to Noi Hamvorah. It's the most adorable 
thing. Like there were tears in the kids' eyes. They were so <laughs> proud. Is this like an assembly? Where does this happen? Yeah, it was an outdoor. They, they put up a tent. This was the first assembly-like thing in over a year. They put up an outdoor tent and in the courtyard of the school of Ezra Academy, they spaced out a lot of chairs and they basically, you know, parents sat in a semicircle and they put a bima, a reader's table and a Torah from inside. Stender. A stender, right. It was gorgeous. It was the most beautiful thing. And I have one thought I just want to share with everyone on this which is that she loved public school. Anna loves everything. She loved public school. She triple loves Jewish school. And it's really for one reason, because she feels like the education actually has a point. She feels like there's actually mission-driven learning. And it opened my mind to something. I'm going to write something about this, which is that I was always hypercritical of ideological education in lots of forms. You know, in the 80s, there was like these schools that, you know, there's right-wing Christian schools that don't teach this. And there's the Hasidic schools that don't teach secular anything. Here's the thing. I actually now think it's all good. Like the the idea (laughs) that you would teach your kids in some setting where you're saying there's actually a point to this besides getting into college. Because what is secular school at this point? Even the good ones, even the really good ones, the goal is get you into a college. All education is ideologically driven education. The point is, are you upfront about it? And are you actually clear about what your ideology is? If the answer is yes, you're a good school. I think you can denude it into basically just, I think that like pure careerist materialism, which is we will get you to Harvard is not really ideological, but it, you're right. It's It has an agenda. It's the motto of Columbia Prep. Pure materialistic. <laughs> Columbia Prep. You'll go to Harvard. The Harvard School will get you to Columbia. I mean, it's literally called Columbia Prep. <laughs> Read between the lines, people. Here's the thing. The materialism and the kind of careerism starts younger and younger. So now it's seen as virtuous in public schools when they're telling third graders, you will go to Harvard. It's like, actually, maybe that's not the highest thing anyone can aspire to. I mean, I I know that there's a kind of good urge there of social mobility, but being told you will learn a prayer that you can say that your ancestors have said for a long time and have some Hebrew and know this alphabet because it's part of your heritage, I will say for Anna has been much more meaningful than saying in nine years, we'll get you into a good college. She's like, right, what's college? In nine years, more of this, more of the thing that you're doing right now. So the last thing I'll say is I've taken up gardening. That's the last of the three of the three tiered Oppenheimer uh, update newsletter. Anna's Aaliyah gardening trifold. The tri. <laughs> it is. I, I I put my life into one of those trifold machines. By the way, I'm sorry. Mark's life is the absolute. It's like the inverse of the Truman Show. It's like the Truman Show is a show in which there's a reality <laughs> show and he's the only one who doesn't know it. And Mark's life is like there's a reality show and Mark's the only one who knows it. The only one who's watching. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, gardening, season four. <laughs> on the other hand, I ignore current events. I have no idea what's going on in the world. So it's great. I basically was looking, you know, we have a wonderful landscaper who mows our lawn. I like shoveling snow, but I don't like mowing lawn. So we, we employ him in the spring and summer. And he will plant stuff and he does very nice work. But I just decided I can plant stuff. So I went to the nursery, bought plants and put them in the ground. I am now watering them every morning. The ivy is creeping. And now you have your own Ivy League at your house. And in nine years, Anna could go there <laughs> if she's good. So my life is, it's the slow food movement at Oppenshire Manor. I love hearing these updates. They feel so peaceful and calm. Like you're doing something right. Well, thank you. I vaccinated. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm in a good place. But Nick, how are you? I'm good. I see your gardening and I raise you a new podcast. <laughs> It is the second season of Hebrew School, which is the kids quiz game show that we launched last year during the pandemic. And this year for season two, we got actual hosts. It's not just me and Liel being idiots. You bought a folding machine. We procured two human beings. How about that? (laughs) Two human beings who are so funny. 
It's Sabrina Marielle Friedman and Frank Spiro, and they are hilarious. And we have a whole new season, and it's launching this Sunday. It's launching Memorial Day Sunday. People can be by the pool, by the beach, and kick back and fire up Hebrew School Season 2, Ep 1. And if people haven't listened to last season, that's fine. This season is so much better. There's real kid contestants. There's funny songs. Sabrina performs (laughs) songs. Now with 30% more jokes. It's so, so good. When you say real kid contestants, it's not like last season's contestants were fake kids. They were, in fact, real kids. Yeah, that was. it's always been in our description of the show. Like, they're <laughs> real live kids on Zoom, and we talk to them. Because sometimes you think like, oh, are you supposed to listen along and answer the questions? No, like, there's someone there, these very, very smart and funny kids. And the first question that they get asked is like, if you had to add an 11th commandment, what would it be? That's sort of like the end of the icebreakers. Ooh. And they're so funny. One was like, pizza and ice cream every day. One is like, everyone needs a pet. And then someone was like, be kind to the earth. And you're like, oh, (laughs) didn't see that one coming. (laughs) That sort of combines the pets and the pizza one in a neat formulation. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm so excited about the show. I've listened to it so many times. I laugh every single time. I'm not a kid, but I love it. And I think our listeners will too, Sue. We'll put a link to that in today's show notes. And also you can get it at tabamag.com slash Hebrew school. Let me ask you one question as the member of this trifold who is not involved with producing Hebrew school. When COVID has receded and people are doing even more in-person stuff, are there going to be live events? Are you going to bring kids up on stage and ply them with, you know, donuts and... Oh, that'd be so fun. Like, wait, wait, don't tell me. We're going to launch an actual Hebrew school. We'll be at the Bell House in Brooklyn. There'll be actual puppies if they win. At 10 p.m. on a Thursday. The parents will be so excited when you keep them up late, feed them sugar, and send them home with a puppy. Your education is sponsored by Harry's. (laughs) Here are some razors. (laughs) Liel, what's going on with you? You know, it's been... A lot of a week, we went from war to sort of tense, less war slash ceasefire to a spate of anti-Semitic beatings and attacks everywhere in this country, but particularly here in New York. It's really, really tempting to become completely monomaniacal and just focus on this the whole time, which I feel, and I said so on last week's episode, I feel is sort of counterintuitive to the whole spirit of what Judaism is. It is and should always be about the generative, sustainable stuff rather than a perpetual stream of outrage. And so I need your help. I need your help to transition from the grim to the slightly ridiculous, because I think one of the funniest things about monitoring these events in real time is, is watching them unfold online where so much, it seems, of the wars is taking place these days. The thing that we sort of touched on a little bit last week is like, you couldn't sit this one out. There were tweets, there were posts, there were grams. Like, everyone it felt like was weighing in this time around, and it definitely felt different. People who have no stake in this conflict or no even interest in it before two weeks ago were suddenly like, Israel's an apartheid state. And you're like, are you sure about that? Like, where did you get, like, people were just reposting infographics. I mean, this was the Instagram war, it felt like, you know, these previous flare-ups in Israel and Gaza, like, you see them on Twitter, right? The people who are always talking about Israel are fighting with each other on both sides. And This time it was like, instead of seeing like gauzy filtered images from my Instagram feed, I was seeing like infographics about how I should understand the conflict from people who don't understand the conflict. Right. Brought to you by people who heard about the conflict last Thursday. As somebody who's not on social media, I have to say it is both hilarious to me, but also shocking the extent to which people allow their social media ties to take over their lives, not only in terms of informing them because this is where they're getting their news, but also in terms of how they build community and how that community then falls apart all around them. May I take us to a first news of the Jews item? Uh-huh. 
because I think this illustrates exactly what we're talking about. I'm just going to read the article from Times of Israel. Israel-Hamas conflict tears apart Chicago's biggest Facebook moms group. Oh no, we've destroyed Chicago too. I have to say, <laughs> whenever these things happen, because there was a you know an Upper East Side moms group that fell apart around fighting over Black Lives Matter a year ago, whenever these things, these Facebook groups fall apart in acrimony, I have to say, I know these are real people with real feelings and these are real friendships and this is real stuff. And once upon a time, that would have been me not a Chicago mom, but I would have been on Facebook losing friendships. But nevertheless, it strikes me as kind of hilarious. Allow me to read the story originally written by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The tens of thousands of Chicago mothers in a private Facebook group, by the way, if there's tens of thousands of them, I'm not sure how it's private. You have to be admitted. You have to be admitted, but apparently the standards are low. You have to be a person who says you're a Chicago area mom. Okay. In a private Facebook group called Mama Hive, typically post about sleepless babies, strollers, and playgroups. But on Sunday night, with the latest conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza entering its second week, a post went up that broke the mold. Quote, we, the admins of Mama Hive Chicago, take a strong stance against the terroristic act being committed against the Palestinian people, the Post said. Anyone appearing to justify the occupation, genocide, and apartheid that's taking place will be immediately removed. If you feel in any way supportive to those committing these heinous acts, please feel free to remove yourself. Obviously, this went south. It started south and it went farther south. It started anti-Semitic and then it went really anti-Semitic. In one heated exchange, after a Jewish mother compared the group to Hamas, i.e. compared the Facebook group to Hamas, Mama <laughs> Hive is Hamas Hive, and said she'd quit, another mother called her a genocide lover. And then the Jewish mother wrote, go fuck yourself, terrorist, followed by an emoji of an obscene gesture. <laughs> Now, I mean, and then of course it all just like it's forty-two thousand members, and it you know according to JTA it effectively imploded. One hardly even knows what to say. I mean, this strikes me as very sad. First of all, I do understand that especially during pandemic, online community has become more important than ever. But I have to say that when you're a new parent and you have your first child, you you search for other people in that experience and mothers groups, also fathers groups, parents groups, etc. At the playground the stay and play at the library are very, very important. It's hard for me to remember those days because honestly, other parents are fine, but like I got my hands full, right? Well, you do have 17 children. That's right. I understand how that community and those groups can be fine. On the other hand, this is what happens when you get a lot of your community from people you don't know and never see in person and don't have bonds of trust with. You're not only taking a lot of your advice from them and some of it's very good advice, but then you end up treating them abominably because it's not real community. And, you know, I think we just have to ask ourselves, what is happening with grownups who you know are incredibly kind, decent people? And by the way, I've seen conversations and exchanges between fathers go just as south, just as fast as this between mothers. This is transcends all genders, right? And all people. When you have grownups who you know are kind and decent in person, who are giving each other middle finger emojis online, something's broken there, right? I think that's exactly the point, Mark. I, I think the point isn't just the brokenness around this particular conversation. It's the brokenness of the whole form of exchange, right? I mean, if your way of interacting with other people becomes primarily about exchanging signals on digitized platforms and abandoning all the hard work of actually holding space with other people, building a community, which requires, I mean, the great phrase in, in Pirkei Avot and Ethics of Our Fathers is right? Like you have to buy yourself a friend. If you want friendship, you have to actually invest in it. You have to really create community because it's hard work and often it's annoying. If you fail to do this, here's what you become. You become Mama Hive, inevitably. I mean, this will happen to you no matter what. Pick your topic. It could be George Floyd. It could be Israel. Eventually, 
you will come to this point in which you implode because none of this is real life. And in fact, we talk so much today about going viral and, you know, stuff kind of like going viral and which is a sort of like organizing metaphor of, of life online. Judaism is about the exact opposite of it. It's about small quorums of people coming together in person and doing the hard work together. I have a bit of a different point of view. Look, I agree with you guys broadly, right, about the idea that like online communities are not the same as in-person communities. I think we're being a little tough on Mama Hive and like moms groups in particular because I get it. Like what stroller to get? I've been at work all day. I've been with my kids all day. Like I think that it's really, really hard to say these people actually should be like out there making community in person. Like, I think that's just a lot of weight to put on these communities. Right, but Stephanie, all these questions used to be answered by real human beings who are in your life and like not only told you what stroller to get, but would give you your strollers. And if you look at like life in religious communities, they won't just give you the hand-me-downs. And also when you have the baby, come in and feed you for a couple months. They'll actually invest in you. I just think it's it's hard. It's a pandemic. So it's like, I think the combination of the pandemic and like also the burden that we place on I would say mother. Like, I think that there's, this is a specific example that's like a little bit more complicated than, like, I agree to your broader points, but I think that like, I understand why people find community in this group because it's people who can be like, my kid isn't sleeping. It's four in the morning. What the hell do I do? Yeah. I mean, let let me say that having been through specifically a stroller crisis before our first child was born, where we were sublimating all of our anxiety into which stroller to get. Like I've, I've been there. (laughs) The stroller thing, let, let me just tell every future parent, like get a cheap stroller. That's end of story. If you can afford expensive one, get an expensive one. Otherwise any stroller will do. But, the, the question of like what happens when you have a sleepless child and it's destroying your lives because you're all tired all the time and so you start fighting and so your marriage suffers and, and you know, when you have more children and the sleepless child is now destroying the sleep of the children who you thought you'd gotten to sleep well and are now three or four years old and now they're backtracked. Like, believe me, I understand how real it is. I do want to say, and again, this isn't to criticize any person, that when you're turning to a 42,000-person Facebook group, because the circumstances of life in the city and careerism and our lack of support for parents mean that for whatever reason, you don't have half a dozen people you know whom you can ask this question to, that I think there's something broken there. And let me point out, these things always seem to happen in places like the Upper East Side of New York and Chicago, where it's not as if it's hard to find other people. You know, if you said to me, look, I'm joining Montana Moms because we all live 20 miles from each other, I'd say, yeah, I totally get it. But it shouldn't be that hard if you're living in West Rogers Park or Skokie or Hyde Park or whatever, or Ukrainian Village in Chicago to connect. And if it is that hard, then we have to all take stock and say, why is it that hard? Because nobody should be in a situation where all of a sudden they're getting flamed by people they've never met over political issues when all they wanted was stroller advice. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, I think I think it's it's interesting. There's it's just there's so much going into this this one specific story, which is so emblematic of so many online communities that we've all sought refuge in. Of, of the brokenness of everything in our decrepit culture. But I also will say, if you're moderating this group, because it was a moderator, it was one of the six moderators who decided to go Israel-Palestine, and she was an Arab-American woman, and I understand. I understand the inclination and, and the sense of pain and the desire to have solidarity and where that takes you. I can only say that the track record seems, the evidence seems to show that when you go political in a multi-thousand person Facebook group, you will not change any minds and you will destroy your Facebook group. Like that's, that's the thing that galls me. I mean, (laughs) the Jewish founders, two founding members were ousted, like one Jewish woman. It's like, what? This is crazy. And this is what I think happened to us in the past two weeks. Everyone went a little bit crazy. Like every space you went to was like, fighting about Israel-Palestine, like fighting about Gaza. You know who wasn't fighting about Israel-Palestine? Who? You know which online community I am so freaking proud of and 
thrilled to be a part of. It's this year, J. Crew. I can't tell you how gratified I felt receiving so many notes from listeners who I, who I really think got this like thing that you know all of us here involved in making this podcast talk about a lot. You know, it's so easy to sort of lose your cool, especially when they're like literally like mini pogroms of like Jews being pummeled and attacked and spat at here in New York City in my neighborhood. It's it's very easy to be the sort of guys like, and everyone should have guns and go and beat people up. Like, especially, you know, for a six foot five bearded angry dude like me. But here's the thing, like that leads absolutely nowhere. It, it may feel really gratifying in a moment when you go on Facebook and, and write or read something that's like so fiery and like full of like this sort of thrust. But here's what feels a billion times better. Just being together with like-minded people and, and again, doing this hard work of building real community that's predicated around, and this brings us back to Anna and her school, around real values, you know? It's ideological-driven education. Why are we here? Because we believe something and we believe in it together. And there are a lot of variations to these things. But we're not about to throw it all in the garbage because we disagree on X or Y or Z. In fact, we're here to do the opposite of that. How much more beautiful is that? Are you advocating for shalom in the home, Liel? Like noted Jewish rabbi Shmuley Boteach, who was in the news this week? And now you have touched the third rail of this week. If there was one person this week, let me tell you, before I even let you say what it is that Shmuley Boteach did, I will tell you that there's one person this week who sort of made me stop and go, ah, you know, do I really support the Israeli side here? Uh, (laughs) Those Jews, so Stephanie, what did Shmuley Boteach do this time? Rabbi Shmuley Boteach, for those of you who don't get his press releases every single day, he calls himself America's rabbi. He's written a bunch of books. He's like a very visible, high profile. Like he's the rabbi that like gets on TV whenever anything happens Jewish and like is the one explaining it. So, OK, there have been a lot of celebrities who have been very vocal in the sort of social media conflagration that we've been talking about. One of them was Mark Ruffalo, who basically accused Israel of genocide and then apologized as of this morning, saying like, I didn't know enough and I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. I, just, I didn't know anything about what I was talking about, but my publicist said it'd be really good for me to come out against Israel. So basically, a lot of celebrities have been doing this thing. But there's no better way to cap off this week of like Israel-Palestine drama and the absurdity, like the, the fever pitch it has reached in our airwaves, on our phones, in our press, than the fact that Shmuley Boteach bought a full page ad in the A section of the New York Times. Like the first section you see, it is on page- The expensive literally one. Literally page A5. And it says, Bella, Gigi, and Dua, Hamas calls for a second Holocaust, condemn them now. And Mark, if you read this ad, you would say, what am I looking at? Who are these people? <laughs> I would say, who are Bella, Gigi, and Dua? Can I, by the way, say, this is a shout out to producer Josh Cross, who told one of the best jokes of this week. One of our listeners on the Facebook group asked, what's a Dua Lipa? Uh, of course, Dua Lipa <laughs> is a famous singer with some great songs out there that I absolutely love. So catchy. And Josh replied, a Dua Lipa is what you get when you combine two Uno Lipis. <laughs> So, but basically, this this ad that Shmuley Balteach's World Values Network paid for is calling out three celebrities for their tweets against Israel and, like, brings up the Holocaust. And you're like, dude, what are you doing? 
There are actual problems, and Bella and Gigi Hadid's tweets are not one of them. Bella, Gigi, Hadid, Mark are two sisters. They are like part of the extended Kardashian universe. They're both very successful models now. Whoa, wait, they're Kardashians? No, they're like friends of the Kardashians, but they're part of that same- What like, do they do? What is their talent? Why are they famous? They're both models. Being being hot. They were famous for being famous, and, and they're both models. Dua Lipa is dating their brother, Anwar Hadid. Wait, Dua Lipa is actually a Hadid adjunct? She's like a Hadid to be, yeah. And therefore is an adjunct to the adjuncts to the Kardashians? Correct. It all leads back to the Kardashians. Gigi and Bella Hadid's father is Palestinian. Shmuley Batech, they are not the problem. Dear Shmuels, we got other problems. To wait, to be clear though, it actually makes perfect sense because Shmuley Batech's big gift is publicity. Like his talent <laughs> sounds Hadid-like to me. You know, it's, he's not a guy with a congregation. He's a guy whose talent is being in the press. So I actually think he's exactly the, from what I'm gathering, from my benighted status here as somebody who knows nothing about these people, Makes perfect sense to me that he'd want to mix it up with Dua Lipa. It's time, I think, to to talk about this idea of hasbara, you know, this untranslatable Hebrew word that means explanation slash PR slash propaganda slash what have you. And whenever Israel is in the news, you always hear a whole slew of people being like, the problem with Israel is it that doesn't have good enough PR. Well, you know, did you know that 4,300 missiles were lobbed? And if you only knew the facts, the whole notion that like all we need to do is like take out ads and be better at like explaining <laughs> ourselves. It's not only like, excuse me, but like completely goyish, but like it's it's so incredibly dumb. First of all, I don't have to explain myself to anyone. That's like, why? Like, no, I'm sorry. I don't feel any inferiority. I'm completely right in my unreasonable desire to stay alive when being attacked by a terrorist organization. I don't have to explain myself to you in a front page ad in the New York Times, number one. Number two, does anyone really believe in this, the year 2021, that like reasonable discussion and like exchange of facts is how people change their minds? This is like, well, I know you um, you say that you're not attracted to six foot five overweight men who look like <laughs> bears who, you know, raided a shelter and got some clothes. But here are my SAT scores. And if you just look at the facts, you saw that I'm quite smart and attractive. Like, man, like, did anyone ever get laid that way? Like, it's insane. Liel, if only if only you told them about your PhD in video game studies. Th- there you have it. Like, here's a clean bill of health from my doctor indicating that I will be a good match for marriage. Like, it's so stupid. Like, if you're not attracted to someone, you're not attracted to someone. This is completely emotional. Don't waste your energy being the person's like, I demand that you condemn Hamas and here are some facts about Palestinian terrorism. It's so petty-minded. It's the one thing that could drive me like completely livid about our side is this. No, I'm sorry. Wrong. (laughs) Also, like now Dua Lipa has been like, I'm being attacked. Rightfully so. She's being attacked in the pages of the New York Times. And you're like, Shmuley, why did you do this? You drew so much more attention. Like, what are you doing? But you see how it's going to play out. You see how it's going to play out, right? She's going to say, I was attacked by the number one, by the chief rabbi of America. She's going to believe some press release of Shmuley Botas and anoint him. I was attacked by America's cable TV, Shalom in the Home, rabbi (laughs) from New Jersey. See, the Zionists are coming for me. It's like, no, we don't even like it. Like, he attacks us all the time, but nobody likes this guy. Come on. By the way, I'm still going to listen to Dua Lipa's music. Oh, me too. Now, was Dua Lipa going to hate the Jews now because of Shmuley Botach? I want to levitate. I want to levitate. I want to, I want to, what are her others? I will levitate to her hatred. That song is... Those Hamas missiles are levitating. I'm fine with that. It's entertaining. You want me. I want you, baby. My sugar boo. I'm levitating.
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Jen Spira is a former writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. We spoke with her a while back. You will hear some dated references in this interview about her book, a collection of short stories called Big Time, which is super funny. Have a listen. are so excited, Jen, to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I can't believe I'm a two-timer. I feel extremely cool. I hope it's a small club. This is basically like the SNL five-timers club. Don't they give you like a sports coat? Like a jacket, right? Yeah. Maybe like a batik tala. So how's, how's humor these days in general and with you and with life? I'm coming at humor from a different perspective now because I was a humor gerbil on the wheel for seven years, working first at The Onion for three years and then a Colbert for like four and a half years. I was hooked into the mainframe and I was doing a different kind of humor than I do now. I was doing topical political satire. So I've had this weird luxury that I've never had in my life the past year, and most of that has been the pandemic, of working on my own stuff. So for me, that has been basically diving into this like happy little whimsical imaginary burrow that is an absolute just jetpack away from the pandemic. So the stuff in my book, it's evergreen. It is not topical. It doesn't have to do with the pandemic. So I've been able to kind of tap out and not, I don't have to write these topical jokes anymore. And, uh, and I don't. So you mentioned being at Colbert for four years. I mean, those really overshadowed with a lot of the Trump presidency. I cannot imagine being in, you said the hamster wheel, but like that's like at the fire hose. Was it exhausting? It wasn't as exhausting as you'd think, simply because, yes, in the morning, you would you definitely knew the news enough to be able to pitch something for that morning's meeting for a bit that would go on the show into the monologue that night. But then the rest of the day had to be forward thinking. And we also did evergreen sketch on that show. And so, like, by design, the day was also about just straight comedy stuff that wasn't about that day. So that was helpful in terms of not being just, like, really beaten down by the depressing Trump stuff. And then on the really good days, it could be really fun to joke about the stories that made you really mad and actually... Even though, of course, we are preaching to our own choir on that show, it could feel cathartic. So I loved, you know, being there for me, too. And I loved being there for the rise of Trump and for the Kavanaugh hearing. You know, I mean, those were things that were really fun to joke about, I thought. But let me ask you this. So it seems to me that once upon a time in the dark ages of like the 90s, people looked at late night comedy writers like, oh, those are the cool folk, the weirdos, the edgy people who write for late night TV. It's like the thing that you do. And then all of a sudden... Things changed and late night TV became the closest thing that we have to the sort of like that tribal campfire that everyone gathers around for not just information, but really validation. And, and all of a sudden, these names 
Colbert, you know, Kimmel, became sort of like newsmakers and validators, became really cultural important. Here you are making these jokes, not just jokes about politics, but really kind of controlling in many ways the national mood, the national narrative. Was there a point in which you were sitting in a newsroom being like, everyone's watching us, we're just a bunch of comedy people. Why, why are people taking us so seriously? Totally. Well, I mean, that's something that Stephen and the John Stewart and all of those guys, I mean, they are guys, I mean, except for Sam B, but they are so sure to disavow that. They say, this is comedy first. The point of this is not even advocacy comedy. We're comedians and this is just entertainment. But you're totally right. They are like funny Walter Cronkite and people, you turn to them to digest the day and it's almost more than just entertainment. You're right. It's weird that it evolved that way. I guess it probably just has to do with how court TV in the 90s when entertainment became news. I mean, so that means that entertainers today have to just like be news deliverers. Just to be sure here that I understand correctly, you're suggesting that Walter Cronkite was not funny. Hey, I did not say that. Okay, I don't want (laughs) ghost Cronkite coming after me. He was funny. The Cronkive. So let's talk about you and your writing. You've written a ton of Shouts and Murmurs for The New Yorker, and they are all very funny. They start out normal. I said this when you were on the show before. They start out normal, and they get to a very weird place very quickly. And now you have a book of short stories called Big Time, and they are also very funny, start out normal, go to such weird places. What is, like, the inside of your brain like? How do you conceive of a story? Like, there's one about, like, a bridal boot camp that ends with, like, skull bashing seven like I I don't even want to give away like it's just it's so crazy give us a peek inside your brain you're so right that the stories are completely insane but what's odd is that they all start from such real relatable places experiences that I've had and that are that are normal relatable experience the bridal body story it's about a woman who is trying to get really hot for her wedding day that came from a very personal place. I fell into that trap really hard. And as I kind of adopted this very like disciplined Spartan existence, as I was preparing for my own wedding to get as hot as I could, I just sort of like saw the silliness of that and started thinking, well, gee, like how far could a person take this? Because (laughs) I started to take it to a certain point. And in that story, the bride basically goes to a work camp and seven winters pass. And she, she starts to think, gee, like, by the time I'm done with this, I'm going to be so hot that I don't know if me and my husband will make sense anymore. And she, she realizes that, you know, she's training for a wedding that will be rendered obsolete by her training. These things were kind of spinning in my mind as I was like getting basically like hard and skinny for my wedding. So that was like a fun cathartic story to write as I was doing that. And then other ones come from like childhood obsessions, like the Goosebumps series and the world of Beatrix Potter and 1001 Nights and different like childhood stuff that still knocks around in my brain. But you did point out that they're weird and that they spin out into crazy places. And I just don't know why these things are inside me. And <laughs> and I've had to rein them in when I work in a room because to be an asset to these different staffs, you know, you hopefully inject some original flavor, but then also make sure that you serve the editorial voice of the show or, you know, the publication. That was a challenge for me, being on my own and being a lone wolf as a total nut who always tempered myself because I was like getting a paycheck from someone and I had to like not get fired. Now, making my own rules was actually like, I was scared of myself. Okay, there's one more I want to talk about, which is the friend who makes you do like big crazy things on her birthday every year. (laughs) A very (laughs) relatable presence goes to such, and it's exactly what you're saying. You stretch it to like the most insane end 
But it starts really real. Will you tell us about that one? That story's called Birthday Girl. And I'm one of those birthday monsters, even though I'm 35 years old. It's never enough for my own birthday. I'm never satisfied. I'm disappointed in my loved ones, you know, because it's just never enough for me. And I'm so disgusted with myself. Every time it rolls around, I'm mad at myself. I know I'm going to get disappointed and I'm I'm ashamed. That you crave this validation. Yes. That's such an intensity at 35. Yes, yeah. yes. So I get disgusted with myself. <laughs> and then I also don't have, when I get the emails for a friend and they're doing whatever kind of intense thing they're doing for their birthday, which now in modern culture, it's normal to say your birthday week unironically. <laughs> and it's normal to say your birthday month. I mean, and that's crazy. So this story was born of my own shame, my own disgust with myself for my need on my birthday. And then I think it's funny when adults at like funny, really boring adult ages, like 34 or 48, celebrate their 48th with the same kind of like pep and fervor as like a, a four-year-old or like a right. nine-year-old. And so this story is about a woman who's 34 who summons all of her friends to this remote island for a blowout 34th birthday celebration. And it's told from the perspective of one of her very, very lame, sweet, underling friends. And so I also got to explore in this story something that I just know about from like my high school days of being in a group with a queen bee. And I just love thinking of what if that insanity extended into adulthood and that one is the really insane one. I love that story. Although I have to say my favorite one is the born conspiracy, which I thought is the best, absolutely the greatest story in the whole collection. Thank you so much. You know what? Actually, The New Yorker is going to run that in three parts online. So it's not not in the mag, but I am very excited that that one is getting like such a real stamp. Will you give our listeners just a hint as to what they can find in The New Yorker soon online? The New Yorker is going to run a story called The Boyfriend Identity. It's based on the born identity. Identity. And it is about an elite extra governmental organization that turns out military grade boyfriends. And it's about a military grade boyfriend who escapes this program and tries to find his freedom and the hunt to stop him. And it's kind of like a feminist revisionist fantasy, but it really is hopefully just an entertaining action story. With a very touching love note to Trader Joe's. You're right. Trader Joe's is almost a character. So you read these stories. They're so charming and whimsical and they have this beginning and then and then things just take this wild turn and you're and you're so kind of like, we're like, haha, oh, familiar, familiar, familiar. Oh my God, what just happened? Which seems to me to be very much the sort of emotional theme of the last, say, I don't know, five years in American life. Was there a point in which you're writing in which you just say to yourself, it appears to me like I'm living in a Jen Spira story. Like the whole world has just become something that I might write. Hey, what if the crazy guy from the reality show becomes the president? Like that is sort of you, no? Yeah. I mean, you're right. Actually, those moments when it seemed like reality had jumped the shark and was going even further than we would have gone at The Onion because it would have seemed so stupid or unbelievable or on the nose. When in real life, the different moments when I felt the outrage or felt like, wow, this is so ridiculous and absurd, they weren't really creatively inspiring to me. They just were depressing. But those were moments where I was just like depressed. And because of the depression, the refuge of the fantasy world that I create with these little silly stories, for me, it was like a form of not therapy, but a happy place. 
just a break. There seems to be something almost cathartic and countercultural in, in the literal sense about these stories, right? Because like you write the story, for example, like this perfect Agatha Christie send up. And it's like these people in the room and they're each speaking in their own voices. And then a minute into it, they're interrupted. like, whoa, 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 whoa. That was a really sexist slash racist slash anti-Semitic thing to say, which is hilarious. You're right. Some of the stories are sort of overtly political fantasies. And often these are almost like revisionist fantasies. And there's definitely a lot of hardcore feminist fantasizing in the book. Actually, there's a story that I wrote called The Secret Meeting of the Women's Club. And that started off as a sketch for The Late Show. And Stephen was really into it and and we got pretty far with it. And I started writing it before the 2016 election and I was sure Hillary was going to win. And so That was going to be a meeting of the most important women in the world, having crossed off the presidency from their list of goals, now meeting to be like, okay, so what's some more fun, silly goals that we can focus on now that we've like, you know, dealt with that really big one. And then when the election went the other way, that sketch was dead in the water because everything felt so dire that the show didn't feel good about even making fun in any way of like feminism because it was just such a serious moment. And so then I was able to repurpose that and write a story that is so unbelievably network not friendly. Bill Clinton, there are punishments. I, I get to meet out punishments <laughs> and that's fun. What are you entertaining yourself with? Your book is out. Like, what are you watching? What are you reading? What's making you laugh? What am I enjoying? I am watching watching The Sopranos for the first time. It's taken me a really long time. My husband wanted me to watch it for 10 years and I actually don't love mob stuff because I find it to be so picked over. I just hate the cliches. Absolutely blown away by the show. I'm deep in the third season. It's insane. I read a lot. I read a lot of like high stakes, historical nonfiction. I have to like read all these different genres because they help me with my writing. Well, I am reading this book on the Johnstown flood. It's really interesting. If you haven't heard, it's really interesting. <laughs> historical disaster stuff. You know, that's super fun. So this book about the Johnstown flood, there is an old series that the Onion News Network did way before I got there called Sex House. And it's a nine episode parody of the real world. And if you haven't seen it, I just rewatched it today because I'm talking to Vulture about it's like an underrated comedy thing I think is amazing. What's your favorite historical disaster, would you say? That's such a good question. Thank you. You know, the Titanic. And of course, I didn't want to say that because it's so kind of like, you know, okay, that's... It's like a mob series at this point. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so picked over, but I think about the Titanic probably every day. It's just so amazing and so dramatic. And I, I recently did watch, there's all these old movie versions that were so unsuccessful before they finally hit on it. And there's one with Barbara Stanwyck and it's from the 30s. And I am interested in the ways that they tried for so long to monetize it and make it a successful story and then finally did. But... That seems boring. So I almost want to say the Johnstown flood because it's a little more hip. Well, you could go Hindenburg. Hindenburg is so, so cool and so crazy. I can't believe that that used to be a way that you would get around. It was like four days. Guys, this is embarrassing. I don't actually know. I know I'm supposed to know what that is. Is that, it's a plane? Is it an airplane? Stephanie, it was a dirigible. It makes sense. (laughs) It was a blimp. That's why you don't fucking know because no one talks about these blimps. Like when they were doing planes, there were also these insane blimps. But what, I don't know what it looked like on the inside if there were just like couches. Like there was, they were so big. I think it was like a party for four days. I imagine, right, green velour couches, everyone dressed in tuxedos with like those round martini glasses and calling each other darling, yes. even as they're going down. <laughs> what 
we all learned a lot today. Wait, can I selfishly ask you guys what you're obsessed with right now? I'm obsessed with a podcast called Appearances. It's by Sharon Mashihi. She is a Persian woman from Great Neck. I am a non-Persian woman from Great Neck who grew up amongst the Persian people of Great Neck. It is the weirdest. It's this like meta-fictionalized one-woman show where she like impersonates a fictionalized version of her family. But it's like so about Great Neck that I love it. Do you know Family Business and Netflix? No. It is fucking amazing. This is awesome. Okay. It's a French comedy. It's about a loser dysfunctional Jewish family that owns this kosher butchery place in the Marais. And it's going horribly. And then they stumble onto what they think is the legal weed business. And it's just this like impossibly charming, very French Moroccan, awesome show about weed and family and love. That's so great because I watched Huge in France, which isn't French, but I thought was an incredibly funny comedy starring Gad. I don't believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know him. Yeah. And it was super funny. I haven't heard a single person talk about that show. We're so cool. We watch French comedies. We. <laughs> No, it's all about Turkish TV now in Israel. In Israel, it is. Oh, my God. My mom is actually watching Turkish TV. There's a show that has like 160 episodes. It's a soap opera. And she's like almost through it <laughs> at this point in the pandemic. It's called the, the Istanbul Bride. It's great. Oh, my God. She's really into it. I'm just going to watch old Cronkite, like his funny stuff in the beginning. It'd be great. And this was such a pleasure. Jen Spira, the book is big time and you are, you're big time to us. Oh Thanks for hanging God. out with us. Thank you so much. I love Unorthodox. Where should people be following you? I'm at Twitter and it's just at Jen Spira. And the book is out now. So you can get it at your local bookstore or online, Amazon, any of those cool independent bookshops. And God bless you if you do. <laughs> Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. 
to the mailbox. First email from friend of the show, Rabbi Stu Halpern. He writes to me, I guess, Mazel Tov on the Bat Mitzvah. Also, is it too early to enter a name for next year's best Jewish name contest? I'd like to suggest Hazel Juniper Slomowitz. I can confirm she actually exists. Yours, Stu Halpern. Well, Stu, I don't know if we're going to run that contest again, but if we do, we promise a slot to Hazel Juniper Slomowitz. Which, by the way, sounds like the ideal Jewish liqueur, right? Because it's like one part <laughs> juniper, it's like gin, and like Slomowitz is like a sliver of it. Yeah, a little sliver at the end. Yes. Have some Hazel Juniper Slomowitz. I'd like a chilled Hazel Juniper Slomowitz. I should add, before we leave Stu Halpern behind for this week, that he also wants to direct our correspondent who wonders how to find Jewish life in Arkansas to his cousin, Yosef Kramer, who's the Chabad rabbi in Little Rock. He sends along Yosef's cell phone, 347-327-2100. Anyone who wants some Jewish life from Chabad in Little Rock, Yossi Kramer. There you go. Stu adds that Yossi is a great dude and his wedding was covered by the local papers. So if you go to ArkansasOnline.com, you can find <laughs> the wedding of Stu Halpert's cousin Yossi, who will help connect our listener in Arkansas to Judaism. Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. I think we should all be calling Yosef now that we've shared his number on the air. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Correct. Penultimately, before we get to the serious stuff, our longtime contributor, listener, interviewee, Shay Khatiri, our favorite Iranian-American friend of the Jews. <laughs> himself. That's right. Has written to us after our discussion of the Jewish slur. Here, I give you a brief trigger warning. I'm about to say the Jewish slur, kike. And he says, there's a neighborhood, Pikesville, near the Baltimore campus of Johns Hopkins. A lot of Jews live there. A few clever Jewish friends of mine who went to Hopkins for college call it Kikesville. That was the first time I was introduced to the slur. By the way, it's very clear that like people used to use that in a negative, like people used to probably call Pikesville that like years ago. And now, like, funny Jewish college students are like, oh, we're reappropriating it. The A.E. Pie House is moving to Kikesville. <laughs> and finally, our good friend of the show, Matt Sheeran, writes us a letter. Would you read it for us, Liel Leibowitz? Dear Podzilla, featuring Lil Pod Princess, Corduroy Rav, and the great nerd rabbi. I wonder which one is which here. I find myself at an unpleasant point in my life in which my feelings towards Israel are pulling me in opposite directions. I strongly oppose anyone attacking Israel for any reason. But I also recognize that the world's only Jewish state hasn't necessarily treated its closest neighbors with the respect that they deserve. It's an incredibly complex situation for which I know that there are no easy answers. The thing that I'm struggling with particularly is that many people I'm close with feel very strongly about the situation. TLDR, I went to art school. So you can probably guess the political leanings of many in my orbit. I found it particularly difficult to be on social media with all of the hashtags, copy and pasted posts about apartheid states and general knee-jerk reactions to everything Israel. Before Liel tells me to just get off social media, just remember that we're still in the midst of a pandemic and I'd like to have friends to return to once it's a little safer. I'm curious to hear how you'd recommend engaging this particular topic with people who always seem to have all of the answers and have already made up their mind that Israel is the worst authoritarian state since Nazi Germany. Most importantly, I want to be able to explain to my son, the perfectly named Sai, that his great-great-grandparents' deaths in the Holocaust were not in vain, that they died for no other reason than what they believed in, and that their beliefs led to the founding of Israel. As always, our little family appreciates all the work you do for the show, the J. Crew, and we wish you all many happy and healthy days ahead. Love, Matt Sheeran. I know this isn't the point, but their, their baby Sai is very cute. So cute. So Matt Sheeran writes, before Liel tells me to get off social media, just remember, blah, 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 I'm not going to get off social media. Uh, Matt, 
get off social media. Your true friends will still be there when you return from pandemic. Get off social media. If you must stay, then I will honor your question. You say, how would you recommend engaging this particular topic with people who always seem to have all the answers? Matt, do not engage this particular topic with anybody, including people who seem to have all the answers. You are not going to change any minds. It is not your job to answer their questions if they have them. Just keep posting pictures of your beautiful son, Cy. That's Oppenheimer's advice. So I'm going to go a different direction. I wrote a piece for Tablet this week. And look, we all try to kind of differentiate between the work that we do in writing, which is often more political or, or more nuanced or more, you know, engaged with, with different facets in the work we do here on the show, which is, as far as I'm concerned, is much more predicated on creating this wonderful community that we have. But the point I made in this tablet piece, which was a very painful one to write, is that we're looking at something that I call the great divide, right? There used to be a time in which you could hold fairly complex opinions about this particular topic and say, well, you know, I'm a Zionist, but I really have issues with what I believe to be the Israeli occupation. And I don't like Netanyahu, but I believe Israel's right to exist. And these nuances were not only feasible, they were in fact crucial to a civic society that functions. All these distinctions, I believe, have been erased. We could spend a lot of time discussing why and by whom and, and to what effect. But I think we're now at a moment and at a juncture where, where you actually just have to choose. Are you in camp A or camp B? Do you support Israel's right to exist? And is it an important part of your life? Or is it not? Are you in team Zionist or anti-Zionist? It is sadly, and I say this with a lot of pain and not an ounce of bravado, where we are. And Matt, I think that if you make this choice, you should realize that a lot of the people that you describe are going to make opposite choices. This is not an easy moment. This is a moment in which friendships indeed break apart, in which, you know, loyalties are indeed tested. We have lived through those in history that we personally, you know, have been all brought up into this kind of rosy period in American history or world history in which we thought reasonable, rational discussion could take us ever forward to a brighter future with few real disagreements that couldn't be ironed out is really a huge privilege. I think you go back to core elements. And I think right there in the last portion of your question is the core element. It's like, I want my son to feel like he's connected to something. And honestly, you put it, you know, the Holocaust wasn't in vain. You know, these people, your grandparents died. So their beliefs led to the founding of Israel. Their beliefs didn't lead to the founding of Israel. The Holocaust didn't lead to the founding of Israel. Israel was founded long, 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 or the Jewish nation in its sovereign state and the indigenous people in their promised homeland. That's a story that's much more ancient. And if you want to be connected to that story, then you're part of a camp of people connected to that story. Once you're in that camp, there's going to be a lot of space and a lot of time for distinctions and, and conversations and arguments. But I think now is really a simple time to make a simple choice. And if you care about this, then go ahead and make that statement and let the chips fall where they may. So I hear you and I, I respect the beautiful principle at the heart of that. Number one, like, I feel like my job in public is actually not to make simplistic statements, right? That like what we're called to do is to dwell in complexity, even though it's really hard and people don't listen. But I also don't think that Matt Sheeran's paid to do our job. And why would he want to make any statement that's just going to get him all, you know, he's saying, how do I engage these people? And I'm saying, if you feel like they're potentially abusive don't engage them and you're not going to change any minds. So I, I, why should he be making any statement? Why not just go for a walk? That's the other point. You're not going to change anyone's mind. Just don't worry about it. What he should do is take out a full page ad in the New York Times. <laughs> 
Correct. And explain <laughs> everything to everyone. And I think that will solve all the problems. Exactly. Matt, do the Shmuli Batech thing. Find three celebrities <laughs> you dislike. To yell at. And call on them to denounce Hamas or Israel or whoever you want to denounce. Are we all part of the extended Kardashian clan somehow? Yes. Especially you. We're all within six degrees of being Kardashians, right? We're all Kardashians now. Our Gentile of the Week is John Green. He is the author of The Fault in Our Stars and many other bestsellers, a lot of them YA novels. Producer Josh Cross and I spoke with him about his new book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, which is a collection of essays from his very good podcast of the same name. And you better believe I asked him about the Anne Frank kissing scene in The Fault in Our Stars, which we talked about on the show when the movie came out. This is our very fun interview with John Green. Welcome, John Green. Hi, it's so good to be here. It's such a treat to have you. You know, I know a lot of people know you as a fiction writer, as the fault in our stars guy, which I think is a great way to be known. But you also have this totally other life as a podcaster. So will you tell us a little bit about the Anthropocene Reviewed, what the podcast is, what that word means, and what people who have not been listening to the show are missing out on? Yeah, I desperately wish I could go back in time and choose a name for the podcast that is either easy to spell or easy to pronounce. The Anthropocene is a proposed term for our current geologic age in which humans have become not just like the dominant species, but a geologically significant force making major interventions into the landscape, reshaping the planet's biodiversity, reshaping our climate, and so on. And The Anthropocene Reviewed is a podcast, and now I guess a book, where I write essays that take the form of like extremely in-depth Yelp reviews, but instead of reviewing, I don't know, like a restaurant or a barbershop, I'm reviewing the facets of the current geologic age from bacteria to scratch and sniff stickers. Basically, the book is my way of trying to make sense of this very strange moment in human history that I happen to be living in where we are at once like way too powerful, right? Like so powerful that we decide which species live and which species die. And yet at the same time, not nearly powerful enough because we don't like the way that we're making those choices. And even though we have all of this control over our environment, we are still like hugely vulnerable, right? Like we've seen in the last year and a half that our communities can be brought to their knees by a strand of RNA. It's so weird to be a human. And for like 40 years, I was trying hard all the time not to pay any attention to how weird it was to be a human. And then I guess with this project, I've been trying to pay attention to it. I mean, I have to say, I feel like a lot of your previous work was about how weird it is to be a human, to be a human teen, to be a human of any age. Yeah, that's true. It is super weird. Like consciousness is so weird. It's so weird that like we almost like avert our gaze from it collectively in the same way that we, you know, can't look at the one source of all power and light in this world. <laughs> like... It's very weird. So I wanted to try to chart some of the places where I feel that weirdness. And so in that sense, it's a really personal book, but it's also a book about like, you know, Monopoly and Canada geese. 
It's very hard to describe. If y'all have any suggestions for how I can talk about it more efficiently, I would appreciate it. <laughs> Josh, I feel like you have a few good like taglines for him. Well, what I would say is that in reviewing some of the episodes for this, when I listen to the one that's about the podcast, where you review your own podcast, you talk about how people always put the content that you put in your previous novels on you. Yeah. You know, The Fault in Our Stars or whatever was about you, but it's not really. However, this podcast is, as much as it's about Kentucky Bluegrass or Tetris, it's about you. Right. Even that episode is about the genesis of the show. And if you want to share a little bit about that, but this is very much actually the first thing you feel like you've written specifically about you. Yes. This is the first time that I've tried to write about myself. And on some level, probably also the first time I've tried to write for myself in like a formal book way. I mean, some of that did come from after my last novel, Turtles All the Way Down, was published. I really did begin to feel really uncomfortable with a lot of the ways that novelists have to talk about their work and the strange tension between having a public life as an individual and then writing a novel and then people sort of reading you into the novel. And I tried to deal with that in different ways in The Fault in Our Stars and then in Turtles All the Way Down, but I just wasn't satisfied with any of them. And I decided that maybe the solution really was to stop trying to write in code at all and to stop trying to write from other perspectives or to try to imagine other lives, imagine stories, and instead to try to tell true stories that connect deeply to me and my way of looking at the world. And so that was the beginning of it for me. Something you also say in that episode where you review your own podcast in the form of the other reviews you do on the show, which I love that I think, Josh, we should start doing that for Unorthodox. Um, (laughs) You say that you were getting a lot of of love from the people who love your books. You were also getting a lot of hate online. And you, you acknowledge that, you know, you probably don't get as much as other types of people, other communities, but you don't get that with the podcast. And, and I feel similarly, I mean, we're part of a Jewish magazine called Tablet. And if there's a Tablet article that someone loves, we hear about it. If they hate it, we hear about it. It's much more rare for people to get like that flyby hatred on a podcast episode. Yeah. Why is that? Is it because you have to sort of like sit with it and engage with it and then you're in? It's intimate? I mean, we found the same thing as as you, that this is a really nice sort of like walled garden where you got to commit to listening. I think that's part of it. I, so I, I see it as really two things. One is that I'm rarely like forced to listen to a podcast I know I won't like. Whereas if I'm on Twitter, like I am frequently shown tweets I know I won't like. In fact, like Twitter part of their business model is showing people information that will make them angry and outraged. That's part of how they make their money. Whereas in podcasts, that doesn't happen as much. So I think that's part of it. But I also think that there is an intimacy to podcasts. And that was really attractive to me when I was first starting writing The Anthropocene Reviewed. I knew this was going to be very personal. I knew it was going to make me feel really vulnerable, much more vulnerable than any other kind of writing I'd ever done. And so I wanted to be in a space where you have to be quiet when you're listening. Like podcasts demand a certain level of quiet and and attentiveness. And I also wanted it to be in a place where like people who weren't going to like it didn't have to engage with it. So it's like, just don't listen. Like no one hate listens to podcasts. That seems like a lot of work. I think fewer people hate listen to podcasts. Like I don't hate listen to podcasts and I hate watch YouTube videos all the time. So <laughs> I'm definitely not you want like the a, visceral video. Oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not immune to any of this. But yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And then I also think that it's really, really hard to make yourself truly vulnerable when you're writing. At least it is for me. Like, I am so tempted by the armor of irony and cynicism as ways of protecting myself 
because I know that like if people hit me where I'm earnest, it will really, really hurt. And so I think this project had to begin as a podcast for me because that was a place where I had seen people be earnest in their art and I had seen people be really unironically emotional and finding interesting ways to do that. And that's one of the things that I loved about podcasts and about public radio way before I was a novelist. You know, before I I, I ever wrote a novel, I was doing these commentaries for WBEZ in Chicago and, and for All Things Considered. And it was one of the things I really liked about them is that it was a way of of writing earnestly, writing as yourself, writing in your own voice even. And that all really appealed to me. If I think a little bit more about you wanting to explore the weirdness of being human, I mean, something I was sort of really interested to discover, but not necessarily surprised, is that you are a man of faith. You reference church, you reference your community on the show. And I didn't even know that you majored in English and religious studies. You were a chaplain. That also comes out in one of the episodes of the show. I mean, do you think being a person of faith is is part of what makes you so curious? I mean, can I draw any connections? Do you want to lie down? I mean, like, is this too much into your psyche? No, no, I think that's a very fair thing to say. I didn't want to dismiss religion as a lens through which we approach these big questions. I mean, I grew up Episcopalian, but I didn't actually study. I mostly studied Judaism and Islam. So I don't really, I don't actually know that much about Christianity, even (laughs) though I'm a divinity school dropout and an Episcopalian. But I've always been interested in how do we make sense of this strangeness? What are we going to do with suffering? What are we going to do about the problem of suffering? The problem that suffering is unjustly distributed I can't believe that everything happens for a reason. It just doesn't align with with my personal experiences. I know lots of people do, and I might be wrong. I'm wrong about lots of stuff. And so for me, sacred texts and ways of, of looking at those questions through a religious lens were really important to me in developing responses to them, or at least like developing more sophisticated understandings of the question. So because we will get in trouble with our audience if we don't ask this extremely important question, the Anne Frank scene from The Fault in Our Stars. Yeah. Talk about things that you might have gotten feedback, positive or negative about. And we actually had to go back and check to make sure that was in the book and not just the movie version. Yeah, the book version is different in small ways that were really important to me when I was writing it. And I think were also important to the Anne Frank House. So both the Anne Frank House and the Anti-Defamation League looked at the scene in the book and responded to it very generously and very positively. And in fact, it was only because the, I want to be clear that nobody has a monopoly on Anne Frank's story, and that includes the Anne Frank House. But certainly their response to the scene was very important to me. So for context, for those who haven't read the book, in The Fault in Our Stars, the novel, the two main characters, when they're visiting Amsterdam, they go to the Anne Frank House And then after they're through the actual Anne Frank house, they're in a a building. I haven't read read this book in 10 years, so I apologize if I don't remember (laughs) this perfectly. But they're in they're in a building that, at least as I recall, it is connected to the Anne Frank house. It's sort of like two row houses that are connected now that are both owned by the museum. That's where they kiss. And there's a lot of consideration about that on the part of Hazel. I don't know if I got it right. And ultimately, like it's not my decision whether I got it right. So As far as what I was thinking when I was writing the scene, I certainly wanted to have sensitivity readers read it. My longtime editor for my whole career, Julie Strauss-Gable, is Jewish and the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. I had another sensitivity reader read it as well. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. From my perspective, like, their opinions were very important. And then the response at the Anne Frank House was very important to me. But ultimately, like, I don't know if I got it right. And it's not 
up to me to decide whether I got it right. You know, it's so interesting. I think when the movie version came out with Shailene Woodley and it was such a big hit, everyone was like, you know, we live in the world where people send you emails being like, can you believe there was kissing at the Anne Frank house? And I kind of thought, obviously, the as you say, the film departs a bit from the book. But to me, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I bet people have kissed at the Anne Frank house before. I mean, it's in Amsterdam. I bet people have done other things before going to the Anne Frank house. I mean, I think Anne Frank is such a specific example that like we've cast onto her so many things that are completely unfair and un- just make her stand in for what it is that we want. We could talk about that for for hours. We probably have done that already on the show. But, you know, to me, it was such a realistic depiction of like young people where it's like, yeah, you're here, but you're still you. Yeah, I, I do understand that it's a sacred space for a lot of people and a place that has resonances that don't just include, like you said, that don't just include Anne Frank's life. I understand that. And like I said, I don't, I don't feel like it's my place to make that decision for readers, you know? Well, we will. <laughs> okay, that's fine. And we absolve you. As, as Jews, <laughs> no, no, we absolve you. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> but I, it doesn't? We don't do that? So, okay. So, John Green, in the Anthropocene reviewed the book, there are some things that you, you review that are not on the podcast. Could you give us just like a taste of what someone who has maybe listened to the show already might find in the book that they haven't already heard about? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the reviews are dramatically changed because they felt different to me when I was writing them for print. And also because like the world changed quite dramatically about a year and a half ago. And so I wanted to update a lot of the reviews and expand them to include the ways that my way of thinking about stuff has changed. But then there are also many new reviews and the new reviews tend to be about stuff that for whatever reason, I just didn't feel like would work in audio. Like it's hard to review the internet in audio <laughs> for me. There's a photograph that I love that's reviewed in the book that obviously I couldn't review in the podcast because you really got to look at the picture for it to work. But then there are also reviews that just take a different kind of form that wouldn't have worked for me in audio. Like especially this review of this weather phenomenon called Wintry Mix which is like this horrific kind of Midwestern precipitation where it's sleet and snow and freezing rain and rain all at once. And it's gross. And it's usually kind of coming at you horizontally. And I wanted to write about that while also writing about this thing in literary criticism called the pathetic fallacy, where writers will write about nature as if it weren't indifferent to us. Like Wordsworth writes about a lonely cloud and Emily Dickinson writes about mean clouds and Shakespeare writes about threatening clouds and so on. And so I wanted to write about that while also writing about Wintry Mix. And like, that's a lot for a podcast to hold. So it was fun to do that for the book, though. Another entry in the book that I read that I really loved, and I was wanted to ask if you would actually maybe read a couple paragraphs, is the end of the hot dog stand one, where I have been there and I agree with your review <laughs> for some of the similar reasons. Yeah, sure. So this is a review of a hot dog stand in Reykjavik, Iceland. Full disclosure, I do not know how to speak Icelandic, and that's going to become glaringly obvious, <laughs> unless I can avoid saying the name of the place entirely. Okay. A few months later, in the fall of 2008, an economic recession would sweep the globe and Iceland would be among the nation's hardest hit, with its currency declining in value by 35% in just a few months. As the recession took hold and credit markets froze, experts said we were experiencing a -a once-in-a-lifetime economic contraction, although, as it happened, the next once-in-a-lifetime economic contraction was only 12 years away. We should get out of the habit of saying that anything is once in a lifetime. We should stop pretending we have any idea 
how long a lifetime is or what might happen in one. And yet, I strongly suspect our long day in Iceland really was once in a lifetime. On the chilly summer day, Iceland secured their first ever Summer Olympics medal. I ate a hot dog while huddled with my friends. It was the greatest hot dog I've ever eaten. It cured my multi-day hangover and cleared the film from my eyes and sent me out into the Reykjavik twilight, feeling the kind of close-to-the-chest joy that cannot last, but also doesn't need to. I give Bjarin's Bjetsu Pilser five stars. John Green, we know this interview can't last forever. We wish it could, but it's been so great to chat with you. And our listeners can listen to The Anthropocene Reviewed, the podcast. They can buy The Anthropocene Reviewed, the book. They can check in with you. Where else? What else should they be doing? That's a lot already. I feel like that's plenty. I feel like they shouldn't feel overly obligated to engage with my work. <laughs> is that is that a good marketing message? <laughs> that sounds really good. I think your publicist will be really, really happy with you. <laughs> I hope people like the book, though. I do. And if you don't, don't say mean things to him because we do not accept that. <laughs> it's okay. John Green, thank you for being on Unorthodox. It's such a treat to have you. It's really lovely to talk with you all. And uh, thank you very much. Mazel tovs and assorted other hosannas and thoughts. I would like to take this moment not to offer a mazel tov, but just to remember the life of extraordinary 80s video vampstress Tawny Katane, whom I remember so well, and who had a difficult, but I sincerely believe, important life. She was an important part of culture, and she died a few weeks back. So Baruch Diane Amet for Tawny Katane, and also Michelle Pinchuk, the writer and filmmaker and hip-hop DJ, who made a lot of waves with her art in a very short life, died at the age of 27. And finally, one of our listeners wants to give a shout out to Carl Cedar, who helps lead family services at Congregation B'nai Israel in Tustin, California. Carl Cedar, you have been shouted out at. Leah Leibowitz. I would like to extend the heartiest of Mazel Tovs to a kid who I knew when, when he was like just a little toddler, the wonderful, brilliant Ezra Sanders, the son of our colleague Gabe Sanders and Amelia Kahaney, who this week turns bar mitzvah. Ezra, Mazel Tov, and I can't wait to rock your bar mitzvah on Zoom with you very soon. The theme will be awesomeness. Stephanie Butnick? I have a shout out from our pal Shoshana Ruth Wechter, who says, this is a mazel tov for my friend Kate Beasley. She has been studying with Rabbi Yoni at Congregation Shari Zedek in Southfield, Michigan. She did her Beit Din two weeks ago, and she went to the mikvah at Temple Israel in West Bloomfield last week. She took the Hebrew name Bela Ilanit in honor of Bella Abzug and Ellen Willis, <laughs> two prominent Jewish feminists from the 60s and 70s. That is so boss. That is so badass. <laughs> Kate, we love you. Mazel tov. Welcome to the fam. I have to say, Ellen Willis, deeply underappreciated. I've taught the Ellen Willis reader. I've taught those essays that there is a new Jewess out there whose Hebrew name honors Ellen Willis is fabuloso. And she just wears great hats all the time in honor of Bella Abzug. (laughs) Ellen Willis, first rock critic for The New Yorker, by the way. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine. On the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We're going on the road again to book us. Email producer Josh Cross. That's Cross with a K. J Cross at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to buy the t-shirts you will wear to our live shows, which we will sign with Sharpies. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Febinator. Associate produced by Robert Scaramucci. Artwork by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Our camp director is longtime friend of the show, Jennifer Rick. 
Brickler, rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Craig Morantz of Emanuel Congregation in Chicago, Illinois. And we come to you again from the studios in diaspora that we will always call Argo Studios. Shalom, friends. And then at the after party, like someone will slip the kids drinks and there'll be one of those photos. Like, you know, that classic photo of Drew Barrymore, age nine at, a, at an after party, like with a empty alcohol glasses in front of her. And she's like growing up too fast because they're partying with the adults on set. Yeah, this the ne- that's the next season of Hebrew School. It's like, where are they now? Exactly. Our kid contestants. <laughs> Hebrew School, behind the questions. <laughs>